0: Welcome to Deep in Scripture. I'm Marcus Grode, your host for this program, joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. We're coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International, and uh, just glad to have you join us today as we continue our study of the book of Romans. And today we'll look at Romans chapter 8, 19 to 30. So I think this is almost exactly in the middle of the book of the Romans, but it. We can't take the message of this section of Scripture apart from all that comes before and will come after, so we want to make sure as we're studying this that we're looking at the, the complete context of Romans, and if this is the first time you've joined us, I would encourage you to go to the website, deepinscripture.com, where you can listen to all the other programs, you can get the worksheets, and, uh, and as I've said in the past, we encourage you to consider having a Scripture study at your local parish. You could use what Ken and I talk about every week as a background to that. Uh, that's our goal with this program is that by the guidance of the Holy Spirit that through the study of Scripture together we can be drawn closer to our Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I'm very moved by this section of Romans uh, in a way that I didn't expect. I've, I've read this section many times. And I'm sure preached on it several times back when I was a Presbyterian pastor for 10 years and then the years as a youth minister. I know that I, I, I know for sure that I, I have quoted verse 28 a gazillion times, for we know that in everything God works for good for those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. But I, I suspect that many Christians as they read through Romans, when they get to verse verse 19 through maybe about 25, they might generally kind of glaze over a little bit and, and wonder how these scriptures connect to how we understand the world today. But... The, the tr- this is why private interpretation of Scripture is a great danger, because if you glaze over a section and then jump to the next section, you might miss the data that makes the next section make sense. And by only looking at Scripture through our modern lenses, we can be of great and grave danger of misunderstanding, misinterpreting, and misapplying what scripture. Not just what Scripture is trying to teach us, but what God is calling us to in terms of using the gifts that he's given us to be responsible stewards of our world. And in many ways, this is a big point of what we're looking at today. The overarching idea of this passage deals with our own redemption and our responsibilities of what that entails in terms of our responding to God and what we're called to be and to do. This section ends with the idea of, of God's foreknowledge and predestination, His calling, His justifying, glorification. All of those great theological terms are in this passage, but all are built on the idea of what his Paul's culture understood about the intimate relationship between creation and God. And it's something we've lost today. And this idea that that Paul deals with in this passage uh, about uh, creation groaning because it's been subjected to futility by the will of God and that the creation itself is waiting, hoping, for the time when the the children of God, when us, when we will be living out our responsibilities to take care of creation. And Paul assumes behind all that he's writing here uh, a necessary aspect of the assumptions of his culture that we've lost. And Ken, I want to turn it over to you at this point because I, I truly believe that this is one of those, uh, the silence of Scripture here in which Paul assumes something that, therefore, is not as clear to the modern reader. Well, you're absolutely right about that, Marcus,
1: because what Paul is assuming here is that there's an intimate connection and relationship between nature as we see it outside of ourselves be it the trees, the animals, whatever it is. Um, And there's an intimate relationship between that and God and us. So it's like a triangle. And each point of the triangle is not isolated from the other. Paul here is assuming what many ancient peoples assumed, and that is that the creation was this, a living thing. Plato talked about the the universe as a living being. Now we think of things as being uh, <clears throat> and living and non living, like rocks are non living, and you know animals are living. And the idea, but but the the fundamental idea about a lot of uh, that's behind a lot of our modern thinking and technology is that there's just things like atoms and molecules, and they're configured differently and and that's why we get different things that we see on the surface but basically it's just dead matter and matter in motion the ancients didn't think like that so mark so you're right marcus he's he's assuming this different view of nature it's a view that <clears throat> excuse me it's a view that his hearers would have known uh, for example from psalm 148 where it speaks about praise him praise the lord in the heavens Praise him, all the angels. Praise him, all you shining stars, you highest heavens, you waters above the heavens. Praise him from the earth, you sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail and snow and frost, stormy wind fulfilling his command. Praise him, mountains and hills and fruit trees. In other words, <clears throat> by the very existence of these things in nature, they are giving praise to God in their own way. And it calls upon us to do the very same thing, to praise him. But now as rational creatures, as creatures who have language and think and talk and so forth, but it's all to the praise and honor of God, and all of creation
0: is tending toward that praise to God. It's interesting that you drew us all the way back to Plato and Aristotle and, and the early Greek philosophers, because As often as the case, we have, as people live together, um, that people react and respond to the cultures around them. And just as you described what was the end result of the Industrial Revolution, uh, a, a certain aspect of the Enlightenment, although the Enlightenment itself was was uh, initiated by very Christ-centered men and women, it became man-centered. And Mm -hmm. in the long process, uh, a a portion of that uh, tried to explain creation apart from God, even denying the reality of God. So we ended up with, as you said, atoms and photons and quarks, and that's Mm -hmm. all there is to to anything. Mm -hmm. But in reaction to that, we have today uh, a whole... A host of people that have re- reacted to that, that have rediscovered the, the life of the world, the life in nature, the life in rocks and whatever, but without God. And so they want to see mm-hmm. that the earth itself is a living being without God and that, mm-hmm. uh, that we're, human beings are nothing more than just more animals, but yet we are all animals and we are all to be cherished. And so as a result of that, we have some strange philosophies today, you know, that old idea of, a, of a, your dog or your child fell in the swimming pool, which would you save? And many today would, be, would sit there in a conundrum and let them both die trying to decide which to save first, be, <laughs> you know, because the, the philosophy is built on a false understanding of the reality of the world around us. And you know, Paul is dealing with Jew, former Jews and former pagans that have come together. Both of which recognize this intimacy between creation and God, but their understanding had to be uh, refocused to understand why God had created the world, what was the purpose of man as the center of this creation, and what was man's responsibility to it.
1: Well, man, yeah, and 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 what Paul is talking about here from verse really from about verse 18 to the end of the section we're looking at today verse 30 is he's talking about uh, the return to the original integrity of uh, the integrity of the original creation. Um, Back, oh, I don't know, it must have been 50 years ago or so, but there was a very famous book that was published in Germany called Urzeit Endzeit. And Urzeit means like the original time. It means the, the, well, we use the word even in English, the Ur time. In other words, that means the time in the creation uh, before the fall. And the Endzeit is the time at the end. Paul here is giving us the scope he's saying that that there was this original integrity in creation or rather he's assuming that as you've rightly pointed out but now he's talking about the the futility in verse 20 that the creation is subject to why was it subjected to that subjected to this futility Paul tells us it wasn't because of its own actions or wills, but it's because of him who subjected it. And what he, what he means is that God made this covenant with Adam and Eve, as we read in Genesis. And he said, if you obey, then you have life. If you disobey, then you have the curse. Well, they disobeyed, so they have the curse. So we're under this, this world of corruption. We're under this world of slavery to corruption. The creation is that way, and therefore, when there'll be a redemption from that. He also goes on to say in verse 23, we, are un- we have the same groaning within us. Why? Because we're longing for the redemption of our bodies. And then he says, not only we, but God himself, the Holy Spirit is searching out our minds and he's helping us in that task in verse 26. And his whole point of this is leading us to understand that God's purpose is to give us Conformity to the image of a son, as he says in verse twenty-nine, so that we will be ultimately glorified with Christ as sons
0: in the Son. Yeah, if we look at the creation account, and we look at, you know, the world, uh, the, the the critters that were created to live in that world, and then we see man, as the way it's described in both the creation accounts. Uh, as a pinnacle of creation, one of the main differences between creation and humanity is that humanity has the freedom and the responsibility to respond to God. Creation does not have that freedom. Um, It's been blessed by God, but as a result of our sin, it was... Subjected to futility, as Paul says in verse 20. Um, but yet in, in the last part of verse 20, he was subjected it in hope. And that word hope jumps out at you um, because yeah. that, that hope is the parallel with our hope. Now, this whole passage is a metaphor. He's got, on the one hand, the relationship between creation and God. And on the other hand, the parallel between our relationship with God. And in verse 24, he makes the statement, for in this hope we were saved. So um, he's he's saying that the parallel with the hope that our creation holds as it waits, even as it groans and travail in verse 22, together until now, the whole creation is waiting But it's this hope that there will come a time in the future when everything will be restored. And Ken, we could point to a lot of verses where the New Testament writers talk about the new heaven and the new earth, especially in Revelation, that that everything will be restored, a new, a fulfilled creation. But what it's waiting for is not creation to clean up its act and to take responsibility for the actions, it's waiting for us. And in many ways, that's the point of this whole thing. And Ken, I think it is, again, important to point out in verse 22, when Paul says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning, that phrase, we know, is the implication that the audience that Paul writes to understands this. And we may not today in our culture, because we don't think this way, but that's behind this, this understanding of of this relationship that builds the foundation for this hope.
1: Well, I love the language that Paul uses here when he says, we know that the whole creation is groaning and is in birth pangs even now, even until now. What Paul is saying here, I think is that when God put the curse upon the world as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, he didn't do it with a, with, uh, you might say, with the stamp of despair. He did it with the stamp of hope. In other words, this was a necessary curse because, precisely because of that unique position that Adam and Eve had among all the creatures. Among all the material creatures, they alone possessed language. By the way, that's why Genesis tells us that Adam named the creatures. And no other, no other creatures can name one another. Right. Then, because And because they had language, they had rationality. And because they had rationality, they had what you mentioned earlier, freedom of will. So what Paul is saying here is that because Adam and Eve, mankind in general, was this was in this unique position. God put it on curse, but he put the curse with the stamp of hope in it. And that's what Paul is saying, is that if you look at creation, you can perceive this groaning that's taking place. And because we too are material creatures, we have the groaning in us as well. Now what are we we groaning for? He says in verse 23, we're waiting in expectation for the adoption. Now, in another passage, for example, in in uh, I think it's in Ephesians chapter one, he speaks about the fact that we're adopted sons. Also in Galatians, he speaks about that. Now he seems to speak about the adoption as being something past, but here Paul is saying that we're awaiting that adoption. But now he clarifies what he means by that when he says the redemption of our body. In other words, our our being sons and daughters in Christ has both a past, a present, and a future aspect to it. The future aspect is that our bodies are going to be redeemed from that curse on creation and will be brought into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So Paul here... What the, You might say the, um, the theme, the musical theme almost that's running this passage that vibrates is one of hope to say we are waiting for the fullness of the revelation of the
0: children of God. You know, Ken, you, you mentioned an imagery of, of, <clears throat> that I think is a, a powerful way to understand the background. To this and that's when you can in nice weather is take a chair out into the middle of a woods and sit in front of a tree um, mm-hmm. and just prayerfully reflect now you may it may sound like I'm talking like one of these new-age uh, uh, tree huggers today but actually what I'm telling you to do <laughs> is exactly what st. Bonaventure said to do uh, Saint Bonaventure has a wonderful book. Uh, it's not an easy read, but it's a wonderful book called *Journey of the Mind to God*. It was written what can, in, in the 14th century, and in the 13th century, 13th century, and uh, yeah. in this book, Saint Bonaventure is, in a way, dealing with uh, you know how to. Uh, walk with the Spirit, the way Paul talks about in verse 26-27, the Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray as we ought. But building on this idea of this entire passage, St. Bonaventure gives a six-step process of growing in intimacy with God. And basically, and I'm doing this from memory and this is definitely an overview, these six steps begin by looking at creation, looking at the world around us, looking at, in small detail to look at what he called the vestiges of God, the fingerprints of God. So you look at a bird, you look at the tree, you look at a leaf, uh, you look at a twig, you look at the wind blow, you listen to the calls, and all of these things. What what Bonaventure is saying is you need to be recognizing that all of these are evidence, proof of the intimate love of God. It's, it's an evidence of cre- his creative act in the leaf, in the bird, in the, in the worm, in the snail, in the, the deer, and all of these things. When you see that and you look at the color and the texture and all the beauties of that and you're drawn to recognize the vestiges of God in creation then the next mm-hmm. step is to say, what do those vestiges that you see in creation say about God? If you see the beautiful color in a leaf, what does that tell you about the love of God? If you, if you look at the interaction between the animals and the, and the plants and the soil, you see that, that, what does that tell you then about the love of God? About him as a being? What kind of a being would make these things? And then the third step is you look at within yourself. You look at your, at, the, at the beauty of your own creation and see the vestiges of God in your own creation as a being. The fingers, the, your eyes, your seeing, your hearing, your hair, your, the ability to walk. And the amazement of that draws you to God. So in the fourth step, you say, what do each of those tell me about God? And then if you get to, then the fifth step is to look at God himself in the intimacy of your heart at the vestiges we see of him, his, uh, you know, all of his characteristics, and then in the end, it drawing you to union with God. But the point is, Ken, is that it begins with the assumptions that are behind this passage of the intimacy with creation and God. And by looking at that intimacy, we then discover what our intimacy is supposed to be. And when we see the, the creation groaning, it's, it helps us see the groaning that was within our spirit to live up to by grace, the very adoption we have in Christ
1: well marcus it's it's too bad that you don't have a pulpit to preach that from because <laughs> that's a that's a beautiful sermon or maybe you do have a pulpit um uh, you're absolutely this is it it's not only you're not only correct i think but you're you're this beautifully correct this for here is hearers, i I think I could point to you pointed us to Saint Bonaventure there's several other ways to meditate upon this um but another one, for example, Saint Robert Bellarmine, the great Jesuit of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries, he wrote a book very similar to that, and it's exactly the same idea. That is, we ascend to God, the invisible, the the immaterial one, the material creation, because we ourselves are material. And by the way, sometimes Christians have thought that, in spoken in language of you know, throwing off the, 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 um, the weight of this physical body that we have. But be careful, because Paul here, Paul is not saying that the human body per se is bad. He believed, as his hearers believed, that when God said, he looked at all the creation and said, it is good, it is very good, that the material world is good. What's bad is that it's been corrupted by sin. And our journey is to move through this creation, so to speak, as you so beautifully described, to God, who is the very source of beauty. Pope Benedict pointed this out a number of times in his writings, both before he became Pope and afterwards, that what happened in the Western world is we've lost that sense of the beauty of creation. By the way, that's why J.R.R. Tolkien wrote the lord of the rings Mm -hmm. and the hobbit one of his reasons was because tolkien he lived in a time and if by by comparison to us i mean it wasn't a time hardly with any technology at all all they had basically was cars and phones you know but even he could see that if this continued on that it would have a dehumanizing effect upon people what you're describing marcus is something that every one of us should take the time to do. To go out, sit in front of the tree, listen to the birds, and understand that this creation, in its natural order, is a good and beautiful thing. But it speaks even more of a beauty beyond us. One final reference that our readers may want to consult is a a Czech, actually a Protestant, a Czech Protestant by the name of Erezim Koak in a book called The Embers in the Stars. Some may find that not reading difficult, but he's got these beautiful passages in that book where he talks about sitting out in the woods in New Hampshire, where he would go into where he would go to his cabin and he would spend time there and think about writing this book. And as he did that, he shows the beauty of the creation from the beaver building the dam to the, you know, to the uh, beautiful uh, flowers around him to the animals. Right? And he sees himself as a part of that. Paul is is assuming all of that when he speaks about the creation here.
0: Yeah, if you if you draw a line in these passages between the word hope, That he refers to in verse 20 and then verse 23 and then verse 24, you see a flow of, of what we are to glean from glancing at creation. Verse 20 says, by the will of him who subjected it in hope, always from the beginning there was this element of hope someday things will be different. He says in verse 21, because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. Creation will have the same fulfillment that the children of God will have. And so it's waiting for this. And then in verse 23, and 24, excuse me, he says, for in this hope, in this hope, we were saved. It's that parallel hope. And then verse 24, now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we cannot see, we wait for it with patience. So we are in partnership with creation and waiting. We'll come back to that after the break. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and Me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home, Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics, helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Back to deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Howell. We're looking at Romans chapter 8, 19 through 30. I hope that if you're listening along, that you're looking at your own Scriptures because we we aren't uh, taking the time to read the whole passage uh, uh, because of time. But it's there. Also, you can go to the website deepinscripture.com and you can actually see our 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 discussion sheet that we use. Can we as as we took a break we. Uh, we broke with the idea of hope that Paul makes such an important point of here. He mentions it three times in verse 20 and verse 24. He's got the word twice, and again, it's in the, that metaphor between the relationship between creation and God and our relationship with God, and it's, it's connected. As I mentioned before the break, you've got the creation wasn't just subjected, period, but was subjected in hope. And that hope lingers, continues on. And Paul says in verse 24 that it was in this hope that we were saved. And then in verse 24, he talks about well, what what is hope all about? Mm -hmm. And he talks about the mysteriousness of hope, uh, the elusiveness of hope. But Ken back when I was a Presbyterian pastor, I have to be frank and admit that I didn't have a file folder in my thinking for the word hope. Uh, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. In in almost every one of Paul's letters, at some point, he mentions faith, hope, and love as characteristics of the Christian community. But I, I understood faith as a gift of grace and having faith in Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, and I understood love as my responsibility to live that faith out. But I didn't have a, a good understanding of hope because I was of the theology of the once saved, always saved. And so if I'm saved, it kind of took the wind out of the sails of understanding what hope means in the context that Paul is presenting it here.
1: I've- um, some uh, insights from St. Thomas Aquinas when he talks about this, um, as you rightly call it, the triumvirate uh, the the threefold uh, great uh, faith hope and love. Um, He talks about the fact that one leads to the other. If we have true faith in God then that automatically has the effect or it engenders within us hope. And hope uh, for the future engenders love so that, for example, if we give up on something, we give up on God or we give up on other people, then we fail to love them. Uh, we will lose love in the process. But as long as we can hope for a better day, that engenders us that engenders within us a desire to move on. It's interesting that Paul says here um that we were saved in the version that we're using today, it says, for in this hope we were saved. There's actually other ways to translate this. You could translate it, for example, by hope we were saved, or it could only been translated for hope we were saved. In other words, the goal of our being saved was to lead us to hope. And then in verse 25, I think he complements this by bringing in the idea of patience or endurance. Hupomone is the Greek word, or they would translate that into the Latin patientia, from which we get patience. But it doesn't mean patience in our modern sense. It means more enduring, so that when we have hope, Paul says, we will wait for that with a spirit of endurance. In other words, it engenders within us the desire to persevere
0: in this life because we have hope within us. You know, when I look at that passage in verse 24, when Paul writes, Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Um, it... it It seems like there's a parallel, but you could substitute faith in there for hope and get the same idea. Um, I don't merely have faith that this table in front of me is solid. I know that it is because I can Mm -hmm. touch it, feel it, taste it, look at it, hear it. Mm -hmm. So I know. Mm -hmm. I don't just have faith. I don't just believe that it's solid. I, I, I know that it is. And this idea of faith and hope uh, looked forward to a time when we will know that Jesus is Lord. For now, I believe that to be true. We, we, we look to a time when we, when we will stand before God in the beatific vision by the grace of resurrection. I don't know that to be true yet but I believe it to be. But in this belief is more than merely, eh, you you know, uh, making up something Mm -hmm. and then kind of hoping it Mm -hmm. might be true. It's based on solid facts. It's based on solid uh, reason. It's also based on revelation. Mm -hmm. So the resurrection of the body, uh, we believe that because our Lord Jesus rose from the dead. And when, The foundational fact that gives the foundation to our faith, hope, and love is not merely that the earliest Christians believed that Jesus arose, but because they knew that he did. Because of that exclamation we make every every Easter, he is alive. The apostles saw him, that's why Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians 15 to delineate all the people that saw the risen Lord. And so the knowing of the reality of the risen Lord is the foundation for this hope that we have that he says here, that the redemption of our own bodies will be something that we will know someday, but for now we just hope with patiently. Well, and I think what Paul, what you've described there is...
1: A perfect definition of hope, in the sense that um, Paul here is not talking about just some wish that we hope will come true. The hope that he's talking about, he says very explicitly, right? We don't hope for what we're going, what we already see. We're hoping for what we don't see. But the hope that he's talking about here, I think, um, can be um, perhaps translated. A confident expectation it's not a certainty but it's a confident expectation that this is going to take place now you know sometimes our, our um, non-catholic friends talk about knowing for certain that they are saved and we as Catholics um, are very hesitant to say we know for certain that we are saved um, what we believe though is is that God has given us hope, which is a confident expectation that God will fulfill what He has promised. Uh, can we say that with metaphysical, certainty that you know the table is in front of you, or that two plus two equals four? God hasn't revealed anywhere in the Bible that Ken Howell is going to be saved. He hasn't revealed anywhere in the Bible or in tradition that Marcus Crodi is going to be saved. So how can we know that with the same certainty? Well, God doesn't give us that certainty. What he gives us is hope. And there's a reason why he gives us that hope. That is the constant expectation that he will fulfill. It's because if we're continually looking to him, then that creates within us an endurance and a virtue that's moving toward the fulfillment of the grace that he's already given us. So hope is what we really need. We don't need to know for certain that we're going to be saved. What we need is the expectation that God will fulfill what he has said.
0: You know, as you were talking about that, Ken, it made me think about why the faith of the early martyrs why th- immediately they were recognized as saints and they were lifted up as models to follow. Because they were, they were uh, models of men and women of hope uh, mm-hmm. and faith. Yeah. Uh, imagine if they were brought before the Roman Emperor and the Roman Emperor held in front of them a rock and says you must deny that this is a rock and they would have stood there and said, excuse me, but it's a rock. He said, no, you must deny it's a rock. No, it's a rock. But unless you deny it's a rock, we're gonna kill you. And you're standing there saying, but, but it's a rock. And so, if you were killed because you wouldn't deny it's a rock, uh, you might have been lifted up for a man of courage to stand for what is reasonable, but it doesn't make you a man or woman of faith. It's a rock. <laughs> But they were held before Caesar for is Jesus Lord. And that's a matter of faith. That isn't, you know, the the substance of that is something that we build on a lot of reason. But it's something that every one of us takes a stand for in our culture. Because we recognize that a, a, a certain aspect of our faith in Jesus Christ is something we don't see or hear or touch. It's a matter of faith. And so men and women that are willing to die for taking a stand for Jesus Christ, as, as Paul says, in the, I mean, as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, persecuted for his name's sake, you're, that's a matter of sainthood because you're willing to die for what you believe to your core of being is true well it reminds me of and i hope i'm not repeating a story i've told
1: before on the air but um about 5 or 6 years ago i was out at a conference actually the focus the uh, um fellowship of catholic university students at a meeting in in denver and uh, there was a young man there one late one one evening we were sitting in the lobby of the hotel and very very fine young man um a good Catholic young man who studying philosophy. And because he was studying philosophy, he was struggling with uh, the reality of God because philosophy, uh, it, it deals with the deepest questions of life, including God. And and he was struggling with the question of, you know, how do I know? How do I know that God exists? How do I know the church is real? How do I know that the sacraments are are truly sacraments and so forth? So he was struggling with this question of how do I know? And so we 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 were talking back and forth about various issues for probably a couple of hours, and then he he said, "But doctor, how how, how do you how do you know?" And I said, "Well, well, John," I said, "I don't know in the sense that I know that you're st- you and I are talking, that you're standing in front of me, so forth and so on." But I will tell you this, Paul uh, John, I said, "I am throwing my lot in with the in the Catholic basket." It is, it is the true church. They are true sacraments and there's God. And do I know that with absolute certainty? No, I do not know that. That's what faith is, but it, but it's just as real to me as if you could show me something and say, oh, that's an apple or that's a rock because faith sees those things
0: which we cannot see as being real. Yeah, it was Paul, or excuse me, St. Augustine that I think it was, or it may have been Ansel. You Anselm. You can correct me that said that it's not understanding, seeking faith, but faith, seeking understanding. That to truly understand mm-hmm, yeah. involves a step of faith, uh, being open yeah. to the reality of God, yeah. and then understanding comes as a gift of grace, and often it's not the other way around. Uh, it gets us, we, we do need to move on mm-hmm. with this though because in verse 26 is the, turning point of his argument, given all that he has said and assumed about creation that his audience already seems to understand, and the metaphor and the relationship, he then uh, turns to his audience and says, in the same way, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And to a certain extent, in this phrase, in our weakness is parallel with the same futility that the creation was subjected to. We have it within our lives within our own frustration to be able to live out what we know is right, as Paul talked about in all of chapter 7. He goes on, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. Now, it's interesting. This is the first time Paul brings out the word prayer in this argument. Way way back in in Romans 1, Paul says that he was praying for his audience constantly, but he turns now, in the midst of this argument, to, to uh, pose the question. And again, uh, he's—it's a rhetorical statement. For we do not know how to pray as we ought. Kenan, I'm wondering—is this building on the the metaphor again of creation? For in, you know, we've been subjected to the same futility that creation mm-hmm. has as a result of the sin of mankind. And he's building on that metaphor to talk about how our own communication with God uh, is a is a frustrating struggle for us uh, that's been hampered by sin. Well, I I
1: I think what Paul is saying here in in verse twenty six is that our weakness is that we don't know how to pray or conform ourselves to the will of God. In verse twenty seven. He speaks about he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. In other words, God, the Father, the Holy Spirit are working together so that he intercedes, the Spirit intercedes according to the will of God. But we don't know what that will of God is because of our weakness. So he says in verse 26 that it's the Spirit that helps us in our weakness. Now, I think that it might be valuable to to break this down for just a moment there's a number of words that Paul could have chosen for the word help or assist the word that he puts together here is a word soon anti it's a long long word soon anti and it has three components to it the word um, lambano means to take mm-hmm. or lambanomai the word Anti means to stand in and to take something for someone. And the word soon, the first part of it, means to stand in and help along with. In other words, what does the Spirit do for us? He stands in our place, helps us along in our weakness, helps us on our, when we're falling, he comes to our aid. Well, what does he help us with? He helps us. To pray in accord with the will of God, because we are in our weakness, don't know how to pray. But I think the key here is in verse 26, we don't know how to pray. So the spirit uses what he uses, these unutterable groans, these groans that are too deep for words. And we relate to God through words so we don't even know exactly what the Spirit is praying, but we know that our prayers, as imperfect as they are, are taken, thrown into the mix of the Spirit,
0: so to speak, and brought before the throne of God to be acceptable to God. It's interesting that in the history of the church, building on the, the heritage it received in continuity from Judaism, that, that prayer has always been taught – Uh, generally, that um, it begins with audible prayer. So in other words, it engages our senses, um, our eyes, our ears, our, our voice, and then moves to meditation in which it's more of an inner reflection on what we're saying, what we're reading, to uh, almost a um, uh, an effortless communion with God in, in contemplation. I mean, that's kind of a, a, a real simple overview of what I've seen as I've uh, studied prayer in the history of the church, that there's always been this emphasis to uh, begin, to not discount the need for audible, uh, verbal use mm-hmm. of the senses in prayer. And I think that, you know, basing on what's going on here, number one, we recognize that the Spirit is interceding for us uh, mm. all the time. The, the, the Holy Spirit that dwells within us through baptism has put his adopted children in a unique relationship with God compared to the rest of creation. Uh, We have to understand that from what our Lord says and what the New Testament writers, the early church, the early writers, that this intimacy we have with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit puts us in a unique relationship with God. And so we have this intercessor who was sized too deep for words, it says in verse 27. Now, I've often heard charismatic want to argue that that's tongues and that that's really reading into this far more than uh, I think could have been intended. I think the parallel here goes all the way back to creation groaning, in travail until now. There's the parallel, is that there's a sense yeah. of which the, the 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 spirit praying for us. There's a mourning because of our how sin has has detached us, broken us from God. Um, but yet that spirit that's praying. That the, that the mind of the Father is intimately in communion, the Trinitarian communion with the Spirit that is within us, interceding for the saints, and does so according to the will of God. So that which the Spirit is praying for us is what is good for us. That's the point. It may not be what we want, but mm-hmm. it's what's good for us. But the, but the reason that the church has always said, if you want to know how to pray, what do you do? Well, you begin by, by praying out loud is because it's the process of bringing our whole being in line with prayer, because the, the groaning within our spirit as a result of our sinfulness can dis, distract us in our mind, uh, the, the different voices that are going on in our head all the time, uh, the voices in our world the uncomfortableness of our seat, uh, all different things that will try and pull us away. So the church Mm -hmm. in her wisdom has said, you begin with vocal prayer, which really is getting our whole being voicing our prayer to God in union with the Spirit. And then the meditation is our mind thinking about what our senses has seen. Mm -hmm. And then as a result of that, the Spirit can use that to draw us closer to God.
1: Well, in that in that third stage that you spoke of, and and, and by the way, you're absolutely right about. I think, in, in my understanding of the, the way the church has taught about and described prayer, is that it does begin in you might say the formulaic ways of praying with the church praying words but then it leads to meditation and the final stage is contemplation that contemplation is more of a gift from god Mm -hmm. where it goes beyond words it goes beyond our rationality and it's a it's a union and it's a kind of sometimes the love that we experience both in marriage or in friendship or with children or grandchildren or whatever it is we 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 experience that kind of union with people that doesn't need words to describe it anymore. In the same way that deep union with God is something that we, by the grace of God, can experience with Him, and it goes beyond just our, you know, need to or our ability to describe it in in uh, physical words.
0: You know, just thinking of a parallel, Ken and. And to a certain extent, I can announce to the world that what I'm going to t- talk about is true between you and me, and I appreciate that. But I, I've known people close to me that the one thing they want in life is a best friend, is a good friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they can work too hard on it, and they can, com- and they can uh, complain about not having good friends. And by almost worrying too much about it, it never happens. But how does a, fr- a true friendship happen? It begins by giving love freely. It begins with ourselves Mm -hmm. giving love freely to another person without expecting anything in response. So it involves our efforts fully at first. And then in time, if it's engraced by God, then the person you're trying to to care for responds back. And then Mm -hmm. in time, if grace works in the life of that other person, then they, by their freedom, may turn and give freely to us. It's a process Mm -hmm. that begins with us giving first freely. Well, that's the prayer process you've talked about. The reason we use our sensual aspects to prayer is it begins with us reaching to Mm -hmm. God, and then meditation is when you kind of have both happening at the same time the work of God and our work, and then contemplation is all a gift of God, it's the flow. Knowing that underneath mm. the Spirit, the reason we even want to pray in the first place is because the Spirit has called us to want to be close to God.
1: And he's called us to that sonship that you talked about earlier in verse 23 about that we're waiting for that's our that's a sense we have a sense of that deep identity that we're sons and daughters of god and that's what we want to be in our fullness
0: this brings us to that that passage that we've so many christians have quoted over and over and over again we know that in everything god works for good with those who love him who are called according to his purpose we're gonna need to pick up on this And what we'll start next week uh, is we'll start at verse 28 and go all the way to the end of Romans. But Ken, it seems that verse 28 really emphasizes that partnership we have with God, that God is able to work things towards goodness for those that are in partnership with Him, who love Him and are called according to His purpose. It's a both and, this intimacy we have with God in our love we relationship with him. We'll pick up there then, Ken. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And all of you, thank you for joining us on this program. Again, if you go to deepinscripture.com, you can listen to the older programs. Uh, we'd love to have an email from you at dis at chnetwork.org. God bless you. We'll be again next week.